All right, go ahead and grab a seat. It is, uh, it's good to be with you guys as we begin our Advent series uh, this uh, December. Also, let me just say this. I should have said this during the announcements, but December 30th, which is the last uh, Sunday in December, we will have no service. We usually just kind of take the last December in um, the last Sunday in December off just to kind of take a break uh, as we go into New Year's. So just uh, have that on your uh, calendar if you are unaware or if you have family coming into town and you were excited to bring them uh, to your church. Um, you're like, I promise, Mom, I go to church. And, and then they're like, uh-huh, uh-huh, yeah, your church closed for, for the week. Sure. So that, that's happening, December 30th. Um, in, during the Christmas season, during the Christmas season, one of the things that you kind of hear a lot about, whether it's in movies or uh, songs or you just kind of hear it around, is people talk about the Christmas spirit, right? They talk about the Christmas spirit, this kind of weird sort of thing. And even uh, Scientific American a couple years back had an article saying, what is the Christmas spirit? What, where does this idea of the Christmas spirit come from? And why does it hinge so much on different behaviors? And what, what really is it? What is this Christmas spirit thing? And they go on a long kind of uh, Scientific American explanation of it. But one of, the, one of the quotes that they say is this, in general, during the, this is what the Christmas spirit is, we're encouraged to be joyful, charitable, generous, kind, and, and forgiving. And this is, in some ways, what you would think about with the Christmas spirit, right? And, and there's all sorts of ways it gets expressed in that you might feel this. Uh, we sing songs about, uh, you know, there's typical songs we sing in church about joy to the world or things like that that, in, that talk about joy. But there's also just kind of Christmassy songs, whether it's Mariah Carey or whoever, that still generally uh, get at some sort of spirit of love and affection and generosity and joy and kindness and all these different things. You, you don't ever hear anybody outside of Christmas say something like, man, you're really not showing the Valentine's Day spirit or you're really not showing the... St. Patrick's spirit, right? I mean, but with Christmas, almost the whole month of December, there's even an expectation that there should be joy and there should be excitement and people should be kinder to one another during the Christmas spirit season, all, all of that stuff. Some of you, maybe because of this, because maybe this is how you grew up or you really just kind of buy into the Christmas spirit message, people can get really just kind of crazy about this. This is just a stupid meme that says we all have that one friend who's obsessed with Christmas and um, you, some of you maybe are that friend and you, you love Christmas, right? Christmas, you, you start the Christmas music before Thanksgiving, you drink the, the Starbucks Christmas lattes and everything that you can do. You're watching the movies to fill your heart with sort of this Christmas spirit. Sometimes people don't feel that. And nobody kind of gets down on themselves during, during uh, you know, another holiday, Memorial Day or something. It's like, man, I'm just not feeling the Memorial Day spirit. No one kind of gets down on themselves during other holidays, but during Christmas time, if you're not somebody that's feel, feeling all of this sort of Christmas spirit, people even feel like, man, I hate Christmas. I hate it because I actually feel down or because it, it's got bad memories or it's kind of associated with negative things for me or because I just don't like people that are so happy and, and there's like a reaction even to the Christmas spirit that we wouldn't have during other holidays because during kind of the Christmas season, there is this whole kind of expectation and longing for joy and forgiveness and kindness and all the things that it listed out is what the Christmas spirit is. Or another way that you can think about what the Christmas spirit is is just kind of wrapped up in giving. No pun intended by wrapped up, but the, in, in giving. That we think about, man, the Christmas spirit is giving. If you just type in Christmas into Google Images, the, I mean, no surprise, but I mean, the top image is going to be something associated with gifts, right? Something associated with, yeah, during the Christmas spirit season, during the season, we should feel this sense of giving where we give presents to one another, where we give even more to charities and holidays where there's things uh, we just kind of had Giving Tuesday, which is a nationally recognized time where we uh, say, let's, let's actually give something. Christmas spirit is defined in many ways by kindness and forgiveness and, and, um, and uh, relationships, but in many ways, what would probably most sum it up is giving. And part of Part of the Christmas spirit idea is we think about Christmas, there's something during this season that brings out the best in us, right? There's something during this season that you say, man, that brings out the best in people. That we have this, this people seem to be a little bit nicer, there's a little bit more 
you know, waves and hellos at the grocery store than maybe there normally is. There's a little bit more kind of connectivity with family than maybe there normally is. There's, there's something that we say, man, that brings out the best in us during the Christmas season. That's, that's what the Christmas spirit is, something where we experience the best part of our humanity in many ways. And, and sometimes we can see that clearly because of the contrast. We see it even more clearly because of the contrast of our, of our normal lives. During our normal lives, we don't always feel this desire to hang out with our family and reconnect with extended family. We don't always feel the desire to be generous and give gifts. We don't always feel kind of really charitable, just random strangers. But there's something about it bringing out the best and the contrast to normal life that really makes up the Christmas spirit. But here, here's the question. What if, what if we could experience that all the time? What if we could experience this Christmas spirit all the time? What if we could tap into the better nature of ourselves all the time? What if we could experience a sense of giving and generosity all the time? What if, what if we could feel those things that we associate with December, but that would actually be something that marks our lives? What if the Christmas spirit wasn't just this once a month thing that you wait for to get excited about or feel, um, feel maybe even if you don't get excited about, what if, what if it just was a normal part of your life that wasn't so hyped, but it was just, man, the Christmas spirit of generosity and kindness and charity and giving was a part of our lives. It was just who we are. What if we could actually have that more deeply, more powerfully and sustained? We're going to look at a chapter, two chapters really in the Bible over the next few weeks. The idea of generosity that are in the Bible. Uh, they're, they're the two biggest places that you can look at in the Bible if you want to say, what, where does the spirit of generosity come from? How do we get that? How do we tap into that power in our lives on a more consistent basis? And we're going to look at first, 2 Corinthians, and Paul is writing to the church in Corinth about a situation. There's a very particular situation that's taking place where some people were experiencing famine. One church community is experiencing famine in Macedonia. And Paul is writing to Corinth saying, hey, let's, let's be generous. And he's not talking about Christmas, but he's talking about what we would call the Christmas spirit, this spirit of giving and generosity and kindness and looking out for our fellow man. And so we're going to read this section and then look at what does it take to have this Christmas spirit on a more consistent basis? What does it look like to have this spirit of giving? Why is that so important for, uh, for us as a church, for us in our lives? And what does it look like? And really, how do we get it? So here we go. 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 15. Here's what he says. We want you to know, brothers and sisters, about the grace of God that was given to the church's of Macedonia. During a severe trial brought about by affliction, their abundant joy and their extreme poverty overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. I can testify that according to their ability and even beyond their ability of their own accord, they begged us earnestly for the privilege of sharing in the ministry to the saints. And not just as we had hoped, instead they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us by God's will. So we urged Titus that just as he had begun, so he should also complete among you this act of grace. Now, as you excel in everything, in faith, speech, knowledge, and in all diligence, and in your love for us, excel also in this act of grace. I'm not saying this as a command. Rather, by means of the diligence of others, I am testing the genuineness of your love. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, for your sake he became poor so that by his poverty you might become rich. And in this matter, I'm giving advice because it's profitable for you, who began last year not only to do something, but also to want to do it. Now also finish the task, so that just as there was an eager desire, there may also be a completion according to what you have. For if the eagerness is there, the gift is acceptable, according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. It's not that there should be relief for others and hardship for you, but it's a question of equality. At the present time, your surplus is available for their need, so that their abundance may in turn meet your need, in order that there may be equality. As it is written, and this is from Exodus, 
And the person who had much did not have too much. And the person who had little did not have too little. Let's explore this together and start with this question, which is, why is our giving important? We think about what, what is it that could help us to sustain and have kind of this spirit of Christmas, this giving spirit throughout our lives, not just in December. But, but let's start with the question of just why is it, why is it important? Why, why does it matter? And here's what Paul says as he begins the whole section. He says, we want you to know, brothers and sisters. And that could just be a throwaway line, right? You could just kind of read that, and there's a lot of things in the Bible you can kind of just read and move past. But to say, we want you to know, brothers and sisters, as he begins kind of the whole passage, is to say, you're a family. It's to say that you are a family. And if you're a family then our giving is very important. I mean, I mean, think about this. If maybe, you, maybe your office is having kind of a, a holiday, a gift exchange, or some sort of Christmas party, or maybe uh, you give a gift to the postman or to you know, somebody that kind of comes to your door on a, on a regular basis, um, so, some sort of gifts that you give to people, right? And usually people put some sort of limit on those, like, hey, if this is an office holiday party, you can give you know, a gift that's $20 or $25, or if you're high roller office, maybe it's more than that, I don't know. Or maybe it's less than that. And maybe it's even a white elephant gift exchange where really you just pick something crappy and say, hey, I'm going to give this to you with the Christmas spirit, and then if you don't like it, you can give it to someone else, and how, however it works. But that's not what you do with your family, Right? When you think about your family, usually, especially if you think about your immediate family, there's a lot more intention. There's a lot more thought to it. You say, man, I really want to bless them. For those of you that have kids, you, you say, you even ask them, hey, what's on your Christmas list, right? And if you were, when you were a kid, not if you were a kid, when you were a kid, when you were a kid, uh, some of you were clones, I think, you know, that just showed up here. Uh, when, when you were a kid, you might have given your parents a Christmas list, but you would never do that at your office, right? Your office, you probably, or your postman, you probably don't say, hey, what's your Christmas list? I'd love to know. Maybe, maybe, but that's, that's, that would be very rare. That would be the exception. It's way more, when you think about your family, you start to be really intentional. You start to be really thoughtful. You start to go, how can I bless them? How can I think about them? If you think about with your spouse or whoever it is that you give gifts to on a regular basis uh, during Christmas. There's a, there's a thoughtfulness and an intentionality and a joy and a delight in being a part of that. Which is why he starts with your family. Because with your family, with your family, you think about, man, I want to give to them. And see, it's, it's important. Our giving is important when we think about from just a church community standpoint. Because what the Bible's vision is, is that we are a family of brothers and sisters. We're not just a group of strangers that happen to be sitting near each other on a Sunday. But rather, we are a family. We are brothers and sisters. And, and that, that language, look, if you've been a Christian for a while, that's easy to kind of hear that. And, you know, we even say to each other, uh, like, hey, brother, or hey, sister. You know, usually gals don't say, hey, sister, but may, maybe sometimes. But you say, hey, bro, or hey, bro. I mean, we even use that language, and it's just really common. But especially a couple thousand years ago when that was written, I mean, people, the, if you think about the family unit, I mean, it was a very, like, family was not just this, hey, we're all family, we're all brothers and sisters. That was not a kind of a common thing. So some of the power of that language can be removed. But they really took seriously, no, we are brothers and sisters. And so that elevates our giving to an importance to say we are actually a family. And here's what this means. It means that God wants you to experience a community that you are welcomed into where you get to experience a family. And I know many of us are not from Denver. I'm not from Denver. Many of you are not from Colorado. You're not from this area, and you're away from your parents, or you're away from family. You might be away from your hometown or college friends. And what God wants for you is to experience a deep, connected sense of family. He says you are brothers and sisters. And he wants us to be a part of a particular kind of family, which is why it's so important. He wants us to be a part of a family where all of our needs are met. This is why he brings up the story in Exodus. And here's the story in Exodus is at the, at the very end, he says, um, he says that, that all the needs were met, that one, one didn't have too much and one didn't have too little, but all the needs were cared for in the community. And here's the story he's referring to. God's people, Israel, after they were uh, rescued from slavery in Egypt, were traveling through the desert. 
traveling through the desert to the home that one day God would give to them. And part of the means that God provided for them to eat was a miracle. God would every morning, and it's kind of a, the, the, the word is manna, which uh, is, was a bread-like thing, a honey-flaky sort of substance that God would every, every morning have out on the ground for them to collect. And every morning they would go out and collect, and some were able to collect a lot. Uh, they were, you know, the early, board, early bird gets the manna kind of people that would go out there and collect all the, the manna and get it all. And some people, maybe because of disability or because of age or because of just difficulty, or maybe they had like 30 kids and they couldn't get them all dressed and wrangled to go get the manna in the morning. I don't know, you know. But some people weren't able to collect as much, but others were able to then give that to them. And everybody had the amount that they needed. And if anyone tried to collect too much or if anyone tried to store up too much, it would rot the next day. And then the next day, they would have to go out and collect it again. That every single day, God provided for what they needed and all of the needs of the community were met. All of the needs were met. Some gathered a lot, some gathered little, not out of laziness, but just out of ability. But all of the community was able to share and they were able to be a part of a community they were able to be a part of a family where all their needs were met. Nobody was going hungry. Nobody was saying, man, that manna looks really good. I really wish I could have that. Everybody's needs were met because the whole community was contributing to one another and participating with one another. And Paul brings up this verse at the end as an illustration to say, here's why our giving is so important. First, it's important because we're a part of a family. You're brothers and sisters. If we really take that seriously, it changes how we view one another. But also because we're not just a family in some generic way, but God wants you to be a part of a family where your needs are met, where you are cared for, where God's people come together and share what they have so that there isn't this vast kind of variance of people that are hungry and people that are full, but we all share together so we're all able to experience a community family without need. That's why it's important. That's what God desires for us. God wants to care for his family, and he uses us to be a part of that. So then what should our giving look like? If that's why it's so important, what should it look like? This is where we start to think about, well, so what would that mean then? If I really took seriously that people were my brothers and sisters and there was no needs to be had, but we all gave in such a way where God said, my family is taken care of, what should it look like? What should it actually look like? And we have to think about the amount. Sometimes people might say, well, look, I don't, I don't have very much or life is kind of hard for me right now. It's kind of hard for me to think about giving to others and, and kind of caring for the family and caring for their needs. It's kind of hard for me to think about. I've got kind of all these other priorities or all these other needs or all these other issues. A lot of times that's kind of our starting point when we come to thinking about what it looks like in our giving. But look what Paul says about them. He says, during a severe trial brought about affliction, brought about by affliction. So these people are going through something really hard, but... They overflowed in a wealth of generosity. These people say, and Paul doesn't deny, they're going through a hard time. They're going through a hard time. There's a severe trial brought about by affliction, but they overflowed in a wealth of generosity. They overflowed in a wealth of generosity. Just think about what, what should our giving look like? A lot of times in our life, it's easy to think about stuff as, you know, it's hard for me to give because I have all these different needs in my life. How am I able to provide for others? I've got debt. I've got my family's needs. I've got uh, education. I've got, I've got uh, my, my coffee habit. I've got all, all these sorts of things that we can start to think about as needs. But here's what happens if we're honest. Our needs list continues to grow and grow and grow. The things that we believe are needs starts to grow and grow and grow and grow. Sometimes people will even say something like, you know, there's no way I could afford to give to others. But they don't necessarily mean if I gave to others, I would drop dead. They mean life might get a little hard for me. I might not have cable TV anymore. I might have to cancel my Netflix subscription, my Wi-Fi strength might have to be lowered a notch. 
I might not be able to go out to Starbucks as often. I might have to cook a meal more often instead of getting it at Whole Foods or wherever you get, you know, takeout pre-prepared stuff, Costco chickens or whatever. A lot of times our need list continues to grow and grow and grow and grow. And we start to think there's no way that I could give. What should our giving look like? I think what Paul says is really important because he says these people were going through a hard time. These people were going through something difficult. But you know what they did? They overflowed in generosity. And look what he says here. He says that he testifies that they gave beyond their ability. They gave beyond their ability. I think this is so important for us as we start to think about our needs and our ability. People say, I'm not able to give. So here's what Paul is saying. Wherever that line is of what you think you're able to give, these people went beyond that. Wherever we draw the marker and say, look, life is hard for me. This is kind of tough for me. I don't know if I could. Paul says they gave beyond their ability. These, look, if you don't like this, it's not my words. I mean, we're looking at what Paul said. This is what Paul said their giving looked like. They were people that even in the middle of difficulty overflowed in generosity. They were people that looked at what they were able to do and went beyond their ability. Now, what does that mean? They, I mean, that doesn't mean they went into debt. That doesn't mean they were taking out loans. That doesn't mean that they were saying, you know, I'm going to, uh, you know, sell everything I have and, and I'm going to live on the street so I can give to other people. It doesn't mean that. But to give beyond your ability, just think about that for what that would mean for you. That's where I think it's helpful to say, what's the line that you draw of say, man, I just don't know if I'm able to do this. And there's something that is beyond that. It has to mean in some way that people took risks, right? It has to mean in some way that they were risky in their giving, that they weren't calculating in how much they could keep, but they were trying to push the bounds, right? I mean, that's, he, he doesn't spell out they gave $3,000 or they gave $500. He doesn't spell it out, but there's something about the mentality that we could all identify with without even needing numerics, but that he says, look, they, there was some line that they knew this is our ability, and they went beyond that, right? I mean, it would have to mean there's some sort of risks that we take, which is what we do with a lot of different things in life. There's a lot of things in life that we say, man, I think this is all I'm able to do, and then we, we cross over it. We say, but I'm, I'm really going to push it. I'm, maybe, it's, maybe for you it's savings, you know, maybe for you it's the stock market, maybe for you it's, it's um, even a house that you per- go, man, this is, this is the line, you know, when you're meeting with a real estate agent, you say, here's, here's kind of what I'm willing to pay for, and, and then you, oh, but man, this is, maybe there's that house, and you might push yourself to go beyond your ability. We do that in all sorts of things. Paul is saying, when they looked at what their giving was going to be, they took risks. Now, this is not a number, right? That's not a number. Paul's not going to say, look, there's a need here. There's a famine. I need everybody to give $100. Like, Paul doesn't do that. But what he does is, is more helpful. What he does is more wise. Because it's not a number, but it is an amount. The amount of what our giving should look like is beyond our ability. It is beyond what we think our needs are. It is overflowing. That's what Paul says. So let me just ask you this as far as when you think about what your giving looks like in your life. What you're giving, what your spirit of generosity looks like. Let me ask you this. Would you be able to say that if Paul was looking at your life, that's how he would describe it? That if, and I'm just going to pick a generic name. Sorry if this is your name. But if Paul, if Paul looked at your bank statement and said, okay, Jack. Okay, Jack, here, here's where you are. And he says, when I look at your giving, I see that it is overflowing with generosity. Okay, Jack, when I look at your, your bills, I, I logged, I ha, you know, Russians gave me your passwords. I locked into your Mint account. And he says, I, I see what your budget is. He says, I see what your budget is. And whoa, you went beyond your ability. You went, is like, I, I'm just, I, I don't, I'm, I'm asking you to let Paul speak, to let God speak and say, is that what your amount of giving looks like? That it looks like an overflowing of generosity. It looks like things are hard even. Things might be difficult. There might be severity of affliction. And yet 
I'm trying to take risks in how much I can give. I want to go beyond my ability. That's the amount that Paul addresses, which is helpful because sometimes in Christian circles, church circles, we hear about generosity, we hear about giving, and we say, okay, what's the amount I'm supposed to give? What's the number? And Paul doesn't let us off the hook with a number that he gives, but he gives a a check on does that describe us? So that we can't just kind of check the box and say, did it. But then second, it's not just the amount, it is the passion, the heart behind it. Paul might not tell us how much money to give, but he does say how much heart that we should have. He might not say how much actual dollars should be contributed, but he does say how much of our passion and heart should be contributed. Look what he says. He says that they begged us earnestly for the privilege of sharing in the ministry. He's talking about giving here. They begged us earnestly. Think about that kind, like, you don't, when you think, if I said, hey, I saw a beggar yesterday, you would think someone that was asking me for money. Not somebody that was begging me to give me money. But that's what Paul says. They begged us earnestly to be a part of it. Think about that. And then he says this. If the eagerness is there, the gift is acceptable. According to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. So he says, look, you know what makes it good? You know what makes it okay? You know what the heart that God is looking for? You know what the heart Paul says he wants for this family of brothers and sisters to have? Eagerness. Begging earnestly. Eagerness that says, I want to give. What is there anything in your life you've ever begged for or been eager to, to have? Paul says, this is the spirit. This is the spirit that that is a family of generosity, one that begs to give, one that begs earnestly, one that is eager and wants to. And again, this is so important. It's so important because if you are somebody that says, what's the amount? What's the number? How much? And then moves on, you figure out whatever that number is and you move on. Paul says there's something missing. Because what he wants for us, whether you give away, you know, millions of dollars in your lifetime or, or not very much, Paul says, what's in your heart? Is in your heart, I am begging to be generous. I am begging to be a part of this. Because it's my family, of course, why wouldn't I? It is your spirit, is your heart. I earnestly, I'm eagerly desiring to be generous. This is what Paul says our heart should be, that we should, our giving should look like an amount of overflowing and beyond our ability, and the heart should be one of passion. Now, you want to test your heart? You want to test your heart and see, man, is that where my heart's at? Now, here's what Paul says. He says, excel in this act of grace. Now, look, look what he says. He says, look, you excel in all sorts of things. Faith, speech, knowledge, diligence, your love for us. Now excel in this. Now here, here's how you can test your heart. And that's why Paul's doing this, is he wants them to test themselves. He wants them to test themselves, which he says in just a second down here. What do you excel at? What, if, if you were just looking at your life and you were to say, just you know, on a, in a humbly honest way, man, I'm, I'm excellent at this. Maybe it's your career, right? You say, man, I've done, I am excellent at my career. Maybe you feel like you're a really good dad or a really good mom or a really good father. Uh, Those are the same thing, you know. You're a really good dad, mom, father, or mother. Maybe one of those four things, you know. Maybe you feel like you're a really good friend. I've talked to people that say, man, I really prize myself in being a good friend. Uh, Maybe you feel like you're a good spouse or maybe you feel like you're just a really good team player at your job, right? You bring your best to the table all the time. Maybe it's just in your knowledge. I mean, that's one of the things that he says. Maybe you say, man, I, I've got a lot of education. I read a lot of Wikipedia. After every movie I watch, I check if it's really a true story, and I check the details on it, right? I want to know, you know, I'm, I'm excellent in my knowledge. And, you know, you're not going to say that out loud. Like, I'm excellent in my knowledge. But may, maybe you are, right? Some of you are really smart. 
Uh, maybe it's your diligence. You are hardworking, and you know, man, I am excellent. I'm a hard worker. I'm a hard worker, and you view yourself as excellent at that. Or maybe it's your love. And you say, man, I, I'm a loving person. I really am loving. Maybe it's your faith. You, you, you view, man, I, I believe I have a confidence in God. And Paul says this. Excel in this. I don't, I honestly, I mean, I, I've heard people say that they're excellent in many things, even church-ish, churchy sort of related things, but not a lot of people would actually make this claim to say, I'm excellent in this. I beg to be a part of generosity. And I excel at it. But Paul says, look, there's all sorts of things in your life that you might be excellent at, that you might, and it's not, you're not supposed to pick. He says, look, you excel in all these things. Now excel in this thing. Because this is one of the things that so many times we cut off from our striving for excellence in. And then he says this, down, down here he says, I'm testing the genuineness of your love. I'm testing the genuineness of your love. That we can say, look, we can say, I love God. And we can say, I love my brothers and sisters. He says, I want to do something for you, he says. I want to test the genuineness of your love. You can say you love something, but there's always tests to it, right? I mean, if you said that you loved your spouse, you may even have arguments about this. And they say, well, yeah, but you don't do this or you don't do this. Don't say you love me. Show that you love me. Spouses have those conversations many times. Paul says, I want to test the genuineness of your love. Because to give, to be generous to your family is an act of love that's easy to claim like all love is. Right? It's easy to claim like all love is. And Paul says, I want to test this for you. I want to help you test it for yourself. And really that's what he's doing because, again, Paul's not, Paul's not like saying, hey, everybody give this amount. And if you don't give that amount, then, then I'll know. He wants you to test it for yourself. So he wants you to look at his words and say, I'm, okay, self-test. Self-test. Do I beg to be a part of giving? Am I eager to be a part of giving? Do I overflow in giving? Do I give beyond my ability? Do I excel in giving? This is the self-test. If you had a little card that you would circle, yes, no, yes, no. Paul says, I'm testing the genuineness of your love. I'm testing it. Now, here's the thing. No one wants to give out of guilt. No one wants to give out of, man, I feel bad. So, I mean, imagine if that was like Christmas with your family. You just showed up. I'm like, I don't really want to give this to you, but here you go. I'm, I know I'm supposed to do it. So, here, take it, kid. You know, go. You know, go play, nephew. No, no one wants to do that, right? We want to give out of generosity. We want to give out of, you know, I, there's even family members of ours that we're like, hey, look, we don't, our kids have so much. Please don't, don't give, a, you know, give them some socks or something. Like, we, they don't need a bunch of stuff. But people beg to give, right? They want to be a part of it. No one wants to give out of guilt. We want to give out of this passion, out of this beyond our ability. And we do that. We do that at times, often during Christmas. The Christmas spirit is this passionate giving that characterizes, I want to risk in my giving. I want to overflow in my giving. I want my life, not just during Christmas, not just with nieces and nephews, not just with sons and daughters, not just with my spouse, not just my boyfriend, girlfriend, not just there, but in my family, the church. I want to give. That's the Christmas spirit. And we can read that and go, I don't feel that necessarily, or how could I get that? Imagine being able to have that. What if that was just the normal part of our life? Not because you heard a Sunday sermon or because it's December and okay, but what if that was just the normal breath of our life of generosity? The Christmas spirit just described us. Somebody said, hey, hey, you know Jack? Yeah, yeah, oh, that's that Christmas spirity guy, right? Yeah, all the time. Isn't that crazy? But what if that described us as a person, as a, as a church? How, how can we get there? How can we give like that? 
How can that be the thing that describes us? Because you know what's easy? And this is even what happened here in this church. It's easy to get excited about something or compelled towards something and then kind of fizzle out. Paul says, look, you started last year to begin this thing, and now I'm asking that you finish up the job. Because they had started, they had committed to something, they felt kind of this initial uh, urge of, yeah, I want to be a part of this. And then it fizzled. And Paul says, look, I'm writing to you again because I see that this is fizzled, and I'm, I'm, I, want it to, I want you to complete that desire and that eagerness that first was there. But instead of just commanding them, and this is what he says, instead of just saying, I'm the apostle, Paul. He doesn't say that. He says, look, I'm not just trying to command you, but I want to help your heart, which is why he isn't just saying, do it now. He's saying, look, don't you see that you're brothers and sisters? Don't you see that, that, that look, at, I, want it, I want you to test yourselves. He wants to help our heart so that it sustains. So it's not just for a December, but it's something that is for a life. So what can help us? Well, first, let me ask you this. What, what could keep us from this? Maybe you find yourself in a place that you, you, you know the Bible teaches things on generosity and giving, and, and you read Paul's words, and maybe you even take the little self-test, and, and you say, yeah, you know, my amount isn't beyond my ability. My, my heart isn't, I beg to be a part of giving, and, and man, yes, I excel at giving, but instead, it's actually excuses, and it's this, and, and that's what's bigger than, man, I want to. Maybe you feel that. One of the things often, and there can be a large variety of things, but one of the things that can often keep us from giving in this way, that keeps us from what we even know, man, I wish I was there, is our desire to have a sense of control and security in our lives. It's our desire to keep ourselves safe, to keep our world predictable, controllable. Let me ask you this. What are you afraid would happen if this was what describes your giving? Even as I talk about some of those things, if you felt excuses come up or if you felt examples come up, that's probably what you're afraid of. I mean, what are you afraid would happen in your life what are you afraid you would miss out on? What are you afraid you wouldn't be able to have? What are you afraid tomorrow would look like or next? What are you afraid of would be if you said, I give beyond my ability. I beg to be generous. What are you afraid of? See, if there's fear that keeps you back, then many times the reason that our Christmas spirit, our spirit of generosity doesn't look like what the Bible moves us towards, what Paul is trying to motivate this church towards, Often, it's because we're afraid. We want to control. We want to be safe. We want to be secure. I love the way that Pastor Tim Keller, uh, author in New York, says, he says this, Some people want lots of money as a way to control their world and life. Such people usually don't spend much money and live very modestly. They keep it all safely saved and invested so they can feel completely secure in the world. Look, there's different kinds. Look, if you're married, you probably know this. Usually one person's a spender, one person's a saver. That's, that's stereotypical. It's not always true, but most of the time it is true. Okay, I see some smiles knowing, yeah, we just talked about this, right? I mean, that, this is usually how it goes. And usually those people can judge one another. And maybe it's not in your marriage. Maybe you're on the same page. You're like, that's why I married him. That's why I married her. We were on the same page, you know. And, and everybody else is like, oh, that's weird. But, that, that's, uh, <laughs> but maybe it's just within your family or your friends. It's easy to judge people. If you're somebody that is a spender, you look at savers as tightwads and misers and like, live a little, man. And if you're somebody that's a saver, you look at spenders as irresponsible and what are you doing and you're so frivolous and you're materialistic and ah, oh, get control of yourself, Right? But at the heart, there can be a very similar thing going on. And for those of you, maybe this is a word today, we'll, we'll explore more of this as we continue to look at this chapter in the coming weeks. But for those of you that are people that are more savers, a lot of time it has to do with this. And this can be because of your upbringing. Maybe you grew up in poverty. Maybe you, and you finally you know, were able to get a good job and experience some control. Maybe you grew up with wealth and 
and that's just kind of what's always been normal to you and drilled in by your parents and, and family and school and whatever. But those that, that want to control their world and life, they usually don't spend a lot of money. They live modestly. They save and invest, and they feel secure. They feel secure. But in every case, whether spending, saving, money functions as an idol, a god, a false god. And yet, because of various deep idols, it results in very different patterns of behavior. The person using money to serve a deep idol of control will often feel superior to people using money to attain power, or social approval, or other things. You see, what, money beco- what, what makes it difficult for us to give like this is often money is a god to us. It's a god to us that's giving us our security in this world, our control in this world, our stability in this world. And so there may be all sorts of things that you fear would happen if you begin to give in the way Paul describes. Why? Because money is a god. It's a god that gives security and safety to you, that you trust in its power to be your refuge, to be your rock. Now, what can free us from that? Here's what Paul gives. Here's kind of the linchpin of of really these two chapters, chapters 8 and 9, but even of what we looked at today. Here here is the, the key that helps us. Here's what Paul said. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich for your sake, he became poor so that by his poverty you might become rich. It says he became poor. Now, here's what this means, and here's what the message of Christmas is. Here's, here, here's what this is. this is. This is Christmas right here. It's Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, who was wealthy with all riches in God's kingdom, in heaven, in perfect relational unity with God the Father and God the Spirit, who had all the riches and all the comforts of heaven, that was rich, it says. He became poor. He entered into this world, and what did he do? He became a baby. This is why the the understanding of the doctrine of the incarnation, which means to take on flesh of God coming, becoming human, this is why the idea that Jesus is truly human really matters. Because if you just think of Jesus as God, and well, yeah, okay, yeah, he he was rich and became poor. And if you just kind of dismiss the humanity of Jesus, it's easy to miss the power of this. But if you really understand, really believe, no, God became human. He became a naked little crying, pooping baby. He took on all weakness and all vulnerability. He entered into a broken world. He became poor. He gave up all that he had. Let me think about it like this. If we can't. And I know not all of us have the means to do this, and, and we kind of all do at different levels of our lives, but if you can, you pay people to do the jobs that you don't want to do. So for some of you, that might be cleaning your house. For some of you, that might be mowing your lawn. For some of you, that might be doing your taxes. For some of you, that might be, uh, you know, just you, you order Instacart or Uber Eats or, or, or you, you buy fast food because you don't want to cook, whatever it is. If we can, we pay people to do the jobs that we don't want to do, right? If we can, we will, we will do that, and at some extent, at some level, like I said, even if it's fast food or if it's uh, other things, we, we pay people to do the jobs that we don't want to do. But, but often the most difficult things in our life, we, we can't pay people to do. Well, what's the most difficult thing in your life right now? What is it that, when you think about Monday, it's not, it's not always Monday, but just kind of coming back to the week. That might be hard for you to think about. And it might, it could be all sorts of things. I mean, maybe the most difficult thing in your life right now is some relationship. Just like, man, relational difficulty that I have with people. Maybe it's the process of aging. And, you know, like you look around and you go, man, most people are pretty young here. But there's sort of like this millennial thing of like a quarter life crisis that you start to feel like, I'm 30, you know. Maybe it's the process of just getting older that you kind of start to look at your life and go, this is kind of where I'm at now. Maybe Maybe it's work stuff. Maybe it's just the complexity of decisions that have to be made 
you kind of just feel, man, there's a lot of decisions I have to make and feel kind of some of the complexity of that. And maybe it's uh, difficulty in um, your finances. It can be all sorts of different things. Maybe it's just your emotions and handling like the burdens of life. If you think about the most difficult things in your life right now, what if you could pay somebody to enter into that stuff for you? That would be pretty awesome, right? If you could pay somebody to say, I'm really experiencing some, some emotional difficulty, could you take that instead? What if you could pay someone to say, man, I'm experiencing relational difficulty with people, and man, it just drains me. Could you do that for me? If you could pay someone for that, that would be amazing. But what if you didn't have to pay somebody to do that, but they just said, I want to do that. I want to enter into that for you. See, that's what the incarnation is. It's that Jesus lost all of his security, his wealth, his stability, his riches. And what did he do? He said, I will willingly Enter into life as a human. Is your pain relational pain? Man, Jesus was betrayed by people. Jesus had friends that, that left him out. Jesus had people that criticized him and slandered him and gossiped about him. He said, I'm willingly going to enter into relational difficulty. That's what it means that God became human, that he was rich and became poor. It means that all of his stability, security, safety, status, he said all experience vulnerability and poverty and weakness. Whatever is most difficult in your life right now, Jesus said, I will do that. I will do that. Is it, is it aging? Is it the process of life decaying? Jesus became a human being. He never, as God in heaven, felt any sort of that. And then all of a sudden was like, my body, my arm, all my walking in these sandals is killing me. You know, whatever it was. Like he felt all of that, of a physical body's pain. All the hardest things in our life, Jesus willingly took on. He had friends that died. He grieved and experienced sadness. All the things that are emotionally, relationally, experientially around difficult. Jesus said, I, you don't have to pay me. I, I will become poor, vulnerable, weak for you. Jesus said that he would do that for us. Listen, he entered into the things that we most fear. He entered into the things that are most difficult for us right now. Willingly, graciously, freely. So here's what that means. Here's why Paul is saying it. Here, here, here's how that helps our giving. Here's how that produces a Christmas spirit or the heart of generosity. Because if you know he would do that for you, Someone that on this earth, there's not even a way you could pay to take on those things for you. If you know he would do that for me, then you know he's absolutely for you. And the fear that we have of if I gave, I would lose control of my world. If I gave, my world would be less secure. If I gave, I would not have as much kind of control over my world. Jesus says, I entered into and felt it all. You can trust me. Outside of Jesus, one of the best illustrations I, I can think of where someone has done this for us is our mothers. A mom says, I will allow another human being to destroy you. And feel all, the I will become vulnerable and weak for this person. I will become sick and vomit all the time for them. Like you probably wouldn't do that for any friend of yours. Like, yeah, for a few months, I'm just going to puke all the time for you. But all of our moms did that. And they brought us into their body, and we sucked out their nutrients and their energy and their joy. <laughs> for at least a little while. <laughs> I know the moms feel me. Um, and a mom did that, but then you know what a mom is able to do? At some point to her child, your mom probably said this to you. And if your kids are really young, you probably haven't said it to them yet. Or maybe you have. But you can say, look, I birthed you, you know. So, and, it, it's, and it's supposed to be used in like a, so, so don't you know how much I love you? Don't you know? Look, you can trust me. 
I became weak for you. I became vulnerable for you. I, I experienced pain and hurt and heartache and, and possible death for you. So you can trust me. I'm your mom. This is what Jesus says. Free us. To free us from the power of needing money to be safe and secure in our control. He says, I became poor for you. Don't you see? I became weak for you. I became vulnerable for you. Don't you see? Don't you see that you can trust me to be the one that offers you then the security and safety and provision that you crave from money? Don't you see? If we know that, if we know that, then we know he'll meet us every day, just like manna. We can't go, yeah, but what about next year? What about? We know he'll meet us today. We know that he, listen, he will meet you tomorrow in whatever's difficult for you. He will meet you today in whatever's difficult for you. Today you will be met, and you don't have to have such control over your life. You can say, I have him, and he became vulnerable for me so I could trust him. You know what that does? If we have that kind of trust, then we're free to give eagerly, to give passionately, to give beyond even our ability of what we think. And money just becomes a tool instead of a God. And we become a generous family of brothers and sisters where God shows up and there's no need. That's the Christmas spirit. That's generosity. When we take communion, what we remember is this. That God himself, Jesus Christ, took on physical flesh. His body, his physical body was broken. His physical blood was drained from his body. Why? In grace. In grace to save us. To take away our sin. To bring us into his family. To say, you have a God way better than money. I would become this for you. So when we take communion, that's what we remember. And when we sing, we'll sing to this good God that we have. Father, I thank you that you would send Jesus into this world to become broken for us. Jesus, thank you that you emptied yourself, that you experienced poverty for us, that you experienced the fullness of the human condition and its brokenness and its pain and its weakness. And you did that so that we may experience the richness of your salvation. Help us now as we take communion, as we sing songs, to have these truths go even deeper into our hearts, and that we, God, may become a generous family. That we may not just have a Christmas spirit this month, but we would have a spirit of giving and generosity fueled by you. In your name, Jesus, we pray.